We all felt like that in middle school, yeah. We're talking about, oh, the idea of us versus them today. How sometimes it's hard for us to welcome people into the group uh, who don't look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us, uh, believe like us. Um, before I go into that, I want to just say that we're going to lunch after this, and we're all invited, and hope y'all can join me and Kylie and um, so we don't eat alone. <laughs> um, to try, it actually fits with the topic because we're talking about food today. Um, but try not to spend the whole sermon thinking about where you want to eat. Um, we're looking at this series, God Beyond Religion, and it's about how the early church um, kind of went beyond the walls of religion to, to welcome about food laws. And there are some really weird food laws in the Bible, if you've ever read some of the Old Testament. There are some really weird food laws in the United States. Did you know that in Minnesota, it's illegal to eat hamburgers on a Sunday? Yeah. In Nebraska, it's illegal to sell donut holes, period, anywhere. You guys are looking at me like I'm lying. I'm making this up. In Utah, it's against the law to not drink milk. <laughs> if you're lactose intolerant, it's not the place to live. In North Dakota, pretzels and beer are not allowed to be sold in the same place at the same time. This is where Oktoberfest goes to die. I don't know how well they actually enforce these laws, but they are in the law books, believe it or not. Our story about food starts in Acts 10. Acts 10, 1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment of the Roman military. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So he was not a Jewish person, but he saw something in the Jewish spirituality that connected with him, and so he tried to practice some of what the Jews practiced. He would give to the poor, and he would pray in the afternoon, the same time the Jewish people would pray. Caesarea was a Greek-influenced Roman coastal town. If you can visit there today and actually see the ancient ruins, and this is the, the theater that overlooks uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Every few years, they would host gladiator games there. Caesarea was um, a military town. It was where the Roman governors lived. And it was divided between Syrian non-Jewish people and the Jewish residents. And there was a lot of tension between those two groups. And it was not just a tension of differences between ethnicity and religion. It was tension between politics. And that tension escalated to the point in AD 66, we see an... Uh, a uh, story from historian Josephus, he estimates that 20,000 Jews were slaughtered by the Roman military in a single uh, wave of genocide. Times were very, very tense. The Jewish people felt like they were being oppressed by Rome, overly taxed by Rome. And that's the situation, the context, and the place where we find the story of Acts 10. And so Cornelius was part of the Roman military, part of that non-Jewish world that conflicted with the Jews. He has a vision when he was praying in the afternoon, and it's from an angel. 
And the angel says to Cornelius, go to the city in Jerusalem and find this guy named Peter. So Cornelius sends some of his best guys to go find Peter. And while they're on their way, the story jumps to Peter. It says, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Low blood sugar, maybe. God took advantage of the low blood sugar and uh, appeared to him. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This dream appeared, vision appeared to Peter three times. It's like Peter could not get it in his head that God would actually say this to him. And Peter was not wrong in saying, I'm not going to do that. He wasn't wrong. He was following his Bible. His Bible in Leviticus and Deuteronomy were very clear that there are certain things you do not eat. And if you eat those things, because they are impure and unclean, you will then become impure and unclean. You will not be welcomed into God's presence. You will not be welcomed into the religious community or your family. Very, very strict rules. Peter was not wrong. And it was God telling Peter, kill and eat whatever you want. Don't call anything impure that I've called. It's a very confusing message for Peter. He's been told his whole life from childhood, these things do not eat, stay far away. And now God appears to him three times and says, forget all of that. I'm telling you, you can eat. That's very confusing. So Peter woke up from the dream, he heard a knock at the door, and it's Cornelius's men. Peter invites the men for the night, which was kind of bizarre because Cornelius's men were not Jewish, so some of the strict Jewish people would have frowned upon that. And the next day, they travel to Caesarea to see Cornelius. Peter goes inside the house, and he finds a large gathering of people, non-Jewish people, and he says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Right after Peter's dream, he goes to the door and he sees non-Jewish people at the door. And he realizes this vision wasn't about food, was it? The vision that God gave Peter had nothing to do with food. God was not saying you can eat whatever you want. God was talking about people. Do not determine who is pure and impure. The Jewish people thought anyone who is not a Jew is unclean, is impure. God said, stop thinking that way. The story has nothing to do with food. God is saying to Peter, stop using your religious and cultural rules to determine who has value and who doesn't have value. In Acts 10, 34 Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does right. 
his social and religious group that Peter grew up in taught him that God does show favoritism, that you do have to be a certain way, believe a certain thing, have a certain ethnicity, be from a certain place in order to be uh, welcomed into God's family. His social groups, his religious groups taught him that. But it's weird because even in his Bible, it says the opposite. And do says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no favoritism and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you. Give them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. It's in the Bible. It's in their Bible. God doesn't show favoritism. Show kindness and hospitality to those who aren't like you, to those who aren't Jews. But we get so tied up in the rules that determine who's in and who's out, who has value and who doesn't. And we, we like those rules because we like to be around people who are like us and think like us and vote like us and look like us because it's uncomfortable when people who aren't like us come into the mix. So often those rules that are in place become abused and used to keep people out and keep the rest of us in. But everyone there with Peter that day became a follower of Jesus. And they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days, a Jew eating and sleeping with non-Jewish people. Word got out to the apostles, the Christian leaders, Jerusalem, that Peter was staying with these non-Jewish people. And they said, what do you think you're doing associating with non-Jewish people? Christian apostles and leaders started to sound an awful lot like the people Jesus spoke against in Luke 15. Remember, Luke is like volume one, Acts is volume two. It was written by the same person. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and the teachers of the law muttered about Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who is this guy Jesus associating with sinners? And now, after Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and he said, go be like me to the world. Go show the world who I am and what I've done. And they build this community where that starts to do that. It welcomes people, and it, it takes care of people and loves people. But then those rules started getting abused again. And now the, it's the Christian leaders who are saying, who are you to associate with non-Jews. The Christian leaders have become like the people Jesus spoke against. We try to put up barriers between us and them. God is actively working through us and in us to just tear down those barriers again and again and again. Jesus tore them down, his followers tore them down, and then they started to build it back up. Do not associate with people who are not like you. They are not in. They do not have as much value as we do. And God used Peter to tear him back down, tear the walls down. We see those barriers 
evident in our world and our culture today. We see that those walls were built a couple weeks ago in North Carolina. More than a dozen African-American city leaders received a letter in the mail that said, each of you despicable black Democrat, Democrats should be tarred and feathered and run out of town, my town, on a rail. Go back to where you came from. Go to my hometown, Springfield, Missouri. Walls were built. A couple weeks ago, a man, Hassan Khan, was born in Missouri. He's a Muslim. His parents were Pakistani. He went to a school, high school, that was right down the street from where I went, called Glendale. And a couple weeks ago, he appeared at an anti-bullying event and talked about his experience in school. He graduated in 2013. He was on the basketball team. The kids on the basketball team would say he has a bomb under his shirt because of the color of his skin is where his family was from. He said, people used to call me a terrorist. I used to find notes in my backpack saying, I don't belong here. You should go back to your country. When Osama bin Laden was killed, he was a young student. Then a lot of students would laugh and, uh, when others would say to him, we finally got your uncle. And the school administration stayed quiet. And as a result of this anti-bullying campaign that he was a part of, the school has stepped up and said, we need to try to fix this. And they're trying to change the culture. Let's come back home to Seattle. Seattle uh, City Auditor's Office reported that hate crimes in the Seattle area have increased 400% since 2012. Between 2017 and 18, there is a 60% increase in anti-Semitic crime in Seattle, anti-Jewish crime. In a southeast Seattle neighborhood just last weekend, Jewish synagogues found this flyer on their church. Send them back. Deport the commie brown infestation. In Georgia, the walls were built. Mayor of a town denied a black person this job of city administrator because she didn't believe the town was ready for a black person to be in politics in their town. The city councilman, Jim Cleveland, said that she's right, the city's not ready. But for some reason, he went on to voice his opinion about interracial marriage. He said, I'm a Christian. My Christian beliefs are you don't do interracial marriage. That's the way I was brought up. That's the way I believe. He said, I have black friends. I hired black people. But when it comes to all this stuff you see on TV, when you see blacks and whites together, it makes my blood boil because that's just not the way a Christian is supposed to live. What the hell? It makes my blood boil. How dare you use the name of Christ to say that? How dare you build those walls in the name of Christ to say this person, because of the color of their skin, does not have as much value as me? It makes me sick to my stomach. Sometimes the rules of our social groups, our political groups, our religious groups, get in the way, and the rules hold values that are 
Peter went against his social and religious groups. Some of the people in his group said, you don't associate with people like that. Those people don't have as much value as you do. Peter disobeyed the laws of his faith to be obedient to God. God said, the laws of your faith, of your religion, do not reflect who I am. And it's time you need to let go of those laws. You need to let go of those rules. That is not me. So stop following those rules. It's easy for us to see these stories like this that are so overt, just hateful, violent things. And it's a lot harder to see the, the quieter and more subtle ways that we build up the walls. A report came out from high school in Ohio from 2014 to 15 school year of, uh, of racism. And a freshman from that year was confused when a female student slapped him for saying this. And he told officials that he couldn't understand why she stared at him so long afterwards. He was confused. He said, I wasn't being racist. It's not like I was saying, hey, there's my slave. Are you done with the fields like everybody else does? The student did not consider himself racist. How are we building up the walls that exclude people, that degrade people, when we don't even realize what we're saying? We don't even recognize it. The term for more subtle forms of, of that racism is microaggression. It was actually coined by a psychiatrist and a, a Harvard professor, Chester Pierce, in 1970. And uh, counseling psychologist Daryl Wing Sue has become an expert in studying microaggression. And he defines it as this brief everyday exchanges that send denigrating messages to certain individuals because of their group membership. So membership of sexuality or religion or ethnicity or race, gender, whatever group you associate with. And studies suggest from what he's found that, that these microaggressions, the more subtle things, they're not outright violent, but they're more subtle. He said that they can have even more negative effect than the more overt forms of racism. Here are some examples of that. And I know you all have experienced your own. A microaggression would be um, asking a Latinx or Asian American person, where were you born? assuming that because of the color of their skin, surely they weren't born here in the States because, you know, white people are here in the States. It's a microaggression. Uh, calling a woman in the workplace who is assertive, um, intense, or bitchy. And calling a man a strong leader who is assertive. It's a microaggression. Asking a gay couple which one is the husband and is in the relationship. All these things build up walls, make assumptions. All of these things fail to see the value, the perspective of the other person. Whistling to a woman down the street. 
communicating to them that their body is something to be objectified. All of these things, when we do them, So that's not what I meant. I didn't, I didn't mean that. We say them anyway. We do them anyway. Saying that's retarded as a, as a response to something we don't like. By doing that, we communicate that having a mental disability is associated with something bad and negative. When I was a kid in school, everyone, myself included, would say that's gay instead of retarded. I'm sorry for saying that. I'm so ashamed. And at the time, I'd say, I don't mean it like that. That's just what people say. I don't mean it. It still builds up the walls that say, you do not have as much value as I do. In 2012, Ann Coulter shared a tweet. I'm going to show you this tweet, and I want to, you to know... I don't care if it comes from a conservative or a liberal, liberal or a Republican or Democrat, and I don't care who it is directed to. What I'm going to speak on is about the content of the words, okay? Don't get distracted by who said it. Or, she said, I highly approve of Romney's decision to be kind and gentle to the retard, referring to President Obama. In response to this tweet, John Franklin Stevens, a member of the Special Olympics, wrote a letter to Ann Coulter. I want to read you this letter. He said, I'm a 30-year-old man with Down syndrome who has struggled with the public's perception that an intellectual disability means that I am dumb and shallow. I am not either of those things. But I do process information more slowly than the rest of you. And in fact, it's taken me all day to figure out how to respond to your use of the R word last night. I thought of asking whether you meant to describe the president as someone who was bullied as a child by people like you, but rose above it to find a way to succeed in life as many of my special Olympians have. Then I wondered if you meant to describe him as someone who has to struggle to be thoughtful about everything he says, as everyone else races. Finally, I wondered if you meant to degrade him as someone who is likely to receive bad health care, live in low-grade housing with very little income, and still manages to see life as a wonderful gift. Because, Ms. Coulter, that is who we are, and much, much more. And after I saw your tweet, I realized you just wanted to belittle the president by linking him to people like me. 
you assumed that people would understand and accept that being linked to someone like me is an insult. And you assumed you could get away with it and still appear on TV. Well, Miss Coulter, you and society need to learn that being compared to people like me should be considered a badge of honor. No one overcomes more than we do and still loves life so much. He said, come join us someday at Special Olympics. See if you can walk away with your heart unchanged. He signs it as a friend you haven't met yet. John Franklin Stevens. Rather jumping up in defense and saying, I didn't didn't mean it that way. Maybe I need some humility to look inward at myself, at the attitudes, the words, the behaviors that I'm using that make others feel less than. And to admit, I do have... I do have those prejudices. They do live in me. They're not just out there in those extreme forms of violence. They're also in us. Jesus came to break those things down, to tear them down, to burn those walls, to include all people. There are times when we need to build walls to protect us, There are times when we need to build walls to heal. I'm not talking about those kinds of walls. I'm talking about using our social groups, our cliques, our religious rituals and rules to keep people out because they're not like us. We need to tear those walls down. So we as a church, as Mission Gathering, every person who walks through these doors, we will treat them as if they are a member of our family. That is what we will do. And you, as a follower of Jesus, will do the same to everyone outside of these walls. You will treat them as a member of your family. Because that is what Christ called us to do. The story of Peter and Cornelius teaches us to ask What behaviors, attitudes, or words do I need to let go of that are keeping people from experiencing God's love, God's inclusive love? What do I need to let go of? And it takes work. It means I need to learn the perspective and views of people who are not like me to understand how to communicate what words I should use. So here's what we're going to do. Follow Colossians 3 when Paul says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, you are holy and dearly loved. When you get up in the morning, don't just put on your Sounders and Seahawks gear. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. You'll carry yourself throughout the day with a quiet strength and power that comes with those things. Kindness, 
humility, gentleness, patience, compassion. And that means when we come across a situation where someone is um, communicating a microaggression, where we kindly say something, where we defend the person who is vulnerable in that moment. We don't fight back. We call it out. We bring light to those dark moments. We call it out. God is pictured in the Bible as a voice for the voiceless, as a defender of the weak. So are we as followers of Christ. We will be a voice for those whose voice is quieted. There are systems in our culture, in our society, in our government that I believe do make it harder for some people in our society. We need to figure out, and I don't, what to do about it. Wherever we see those walls being built that communicate this group, this person has less value, we need to figure out how to tear them down. Figure out how to tear them down. They have no place in this world. Sure as hell have no place church. But it starts in our own hearts, and I just need to look in the mirror sometimes and see where it is in my own heart so I can do something about it. So let's do that. Let's clothe ourselves with those things. We're going to take communion And as we take communion, Kate, would you care to help me to serve? I do have hand sanitizers. As we take communion, the bread, the wine, that represents the body and blood of Jesus, We symbolically partake in the body, the life of Christ. When we eat and drink, we're saying, Christ, come into me. Express your face, the blood of Christ. You are eating, ingesting, taking on his love, his peace, his power, his strength so that you can take it out to the world. So on the night before he died, a religious, political culture that killed him because of his radical inclusion, and they couldn't handle it. They killed him for it. So he knew it was coming, and he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. He took the cup. He poured it out and said, This is my love, my blood poured out for you. That his suffering, his death, 
all the work he did to tear down those walls will not be in vain. So I invite all of you, every single person, to come take his body and his love and for you to go out and invite every single person to experience God's love and His grace. May we have the strength and humility to look inwards at ourselves and see where the walls of prejudice live. May we have the courage and the strength to allow God to tear them down. And may you have the courage and strength to go out, be a voice for the voiceless, defender of the weak, a hope for the hopeless, a light in the darkness. In Christ's name, amen. Go in peace.